Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Afosa Ajama and Karen Dillon. Afosa Ajama works side-by-side with Clayton Christensen, recognized by Thinkers50 as one of the most influential business thinkers in the world, and the Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, where he leads the organization's global prosperity practice. And Karen Dillon is the former editor of the Harvard Business Review and co-author of How Will You Measure Your Life and Competing Against Luck. Along with Clay, Afosa and Karen are co-authors on The Prosperity Paradox. The book leads with the premise that common efforts to raise the economic status of impoverished countries have been unsuccessful in the long term. The right kind of innovation, they argue, can spur economic development. This model has been proven successful for a number of countries, including the United States. In this episode, Afosa and Karen lay the groundwork for the ideas they present in the book, and we explore some of those ideas further. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Afosa Ojamo and Karen Dillon, and they are two of the co-authors on The Prosperity Paradox. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. All right. Um, and so in addition to the two of you, you also have Clayton Christensen as one of the co-authors. So how did the three of you come together and decide to collaborate on this idea? Afosa, you take it. I think, uh, yeah, I think... Uh... Um, I graduated from uh, Harvard Business School in 2015, and I took Professor Christensen's course. Um, and shortly after graduation, I began working with him, uh, studying innovation and economic development and how the theories of management and innovation played a role. And um, we, the first year we worked together, we published an article in Harvard Business Review, and um, subsequently we, we started thinking about writing a book about this. And uh, we began the process, and we were doing a lot of research um, in, in writing the book. But I think um, we got to a point where um, we needed um, Karen Dillon. Uh, we needed someone who had gone through the writing process and uh, someone who sort of had worked with, with Clay uh, Christensen uh, before. Um, and I got the chance to speak about some of our research at Karen's uh, uh, daughter's high school. Um, and I talked about some of the things we were finding. And Karen's daughter, Rebecca, found it so fascinating that she went home, and that night at the dinner table, that was the topic of conversation. And this really piqued Karen's interest. Um, and shortly after that, uh, she she came on board uh, to work with us. And, and so the three of us have just been an excellent team and just uh, excited about uh, the prosperity paradox. That's great. Um, and Karen, you had contrib- you had collaborated with Clayton on Competing Against Luck a few years ago, correct? Yes, that, that, I, that was, I collaborated with him on two books. Um, Competing Against Luck was a few years ago, and before that, the original book we collaborated on was called How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm-hmm. All right, great. Um, and so in this book, you talk about um, how we can provide aid to impoverished countries. Um, but to start us off, how are humanitarian efforts, I guess, going about providing aid the wrong way, you would say? I'll I'll talk about a personal story here, and um, I'll use that to illustrate. Um, In 2008, um, I read a a book titled The White Man's Burden. Uh, It was written by a professor 
take care of her family. And that story really gripped me because I thought about the hundreds of millions of kids all around the world who lived in similar circumstances. And so shortly after, I started a nonprofit. And so we'd go into communities in Nigeria, we'd build wells, invest in uh, schools, and, and give out microloans. Um, but a few years after we started, um, you know, many of the wells we built just broke, um, and there was really no mechanism to fix them. And so what started as this exciting, passionate um, uh, you know, project ended with a lot of broken wells and, and broken dreams. Now that experience um, and, 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 and that sort of um, the, the process of raising funds, providing a resource, building wealth, is really a microcosm of the development industry in the sense that many passionate, well-intentioned people and well-intentioned programs go into poor countries and metaphorically speaking, they build a lot of wells and those wells ultimately break uh, because there's really no mechanism to keep them sustained. And so when you think about it, we, um, we go into poor countries and we build a lot of schools, we build a lot of clinics, we do a lot of volunteerism, we build a lot of wells. But many of those things don't really have a good mechanism to keep them going. And so we do good for a while, and then it ultimately doesn't lead to sustained prosperity. And in our language, in our book, we call that a push approach to development, where you're designing programs that are very well-intentioned, and you're pushing the solutions, and, and people want the solutions, but they're just not designed to succeed. Um, the difference and, and, and the, the idea we propose in the book um, is really one we call the pool. This is where it really has innovation at the core of it. Um, and innovation, we found, is really the mechanism that can help you sustain many of these programs. Uh, but as you well know, Michael, innovation is such a, 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 a used and, and, and abused word. that mm -hmm. Everybody is innovating, everybody uses the word. And so we try to explain what we mean by innovation, and then we categorize it into three types and how each one impacts an economy. And specifically, we focus on market-creating innovation and the power that they have to help build prosperity. These innovations transform products that are complicated and expensive into products that are simple and affordable. And they make a, a product so much more accessible to many more people in society. By virtue of creating a new market in a society where historically it didn't have that, that market now pulls in all or a lot of the resources that it needs to survive and thrive. And as a result, instead of going in to push many things which are, are good, in, in other words, you know, the schools are good, uh, wells are good, and, and so on, uh, the market is pulling all these things in. And as a result, they, they actually have staying power, and they're more sustainable. And so it's one of the big ideas we present in our book, is that this notion of push uh, versus pull. All right. Yeah, that was a really great summary of all these big ideas um, that you mentioned in the book going forward. Um, so in terms of creating a market, what are some things that if someone were to... Um, come up with a market creating innovation? What are some things to look for in terms of creating a market where there isn't one? 
Well, we say in the book that it's sort of the the, the secret is is not any spe- that you that you have you know a, a genius mind and that you have amazing technology. I think that we sort of associate with um, great entrepreneurs. But putting a new set of lenses on, you know, sort of seeing the world differently, looking for opportunity where others might not already see it. So we, we, we say that there's opportunity in what we call non-consumption, where there are no consumers. There is a need, there is a problem, there is a struggle. So, so you look for the struggle that, that people are, are, are dealing with. Some, they want to accomplish something, they want to make progress in some way, and it's difficult for them. But they don't have any great way to do that with a product or service. So you're looking for the opportunity in people's pain points, basically, and in in a sort of area where there aren't any competitors just because no one has seen the opportunity here yet. So with your new lenses, you can see struggles that maybe you can help create a product or service to help solve, which is the beginning of creating a new market. So um, I want to go back to this concept of pushing and pulling. So corporations, when they create these new markets in impoverished countries, they're pulling in these resources, infrastructure, education, different things like that. Um, are these tasks things that are outside of their area of expertise, do you think? Um, Interesting question. If I say you want to take that one? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think um, on the surface, it, it will look like that's, outside their expertise or at least the core competencies and that's a, a role of the government like the government is mm-hmm. supposed to provide education and, and so on and so forth what we really try to do in the book is focus on the process by which these things these many infrastructures and institutions come into being and become more mainstream to do that we have to go back to where rich countries such as the United States, many countries in Europe, Japan, and so on, were uh, poor. We had to go back to when they were poor, and we asked ourselves, was it primarily the government that built out all these things that created a very nice and conducive environment for business and innovation to flourish, or was it entrepreneurs created new markets that pulled in many of these things, and then over time, the government created more and more infrastructure. And what you'd find is that almost always it was entrepreneurs who created new markets that pulled in all these infrastructures because they had a product uh, a service they wanted to get to these non-consumers that Karen talked about. Um, and once they did that, um, and the government saw, oh, we, we actually need to, to build more roads so that we can have more cars, or we actually need to invest more in education so that we can have more skilled labor so people can go um, and, and get jobs in these new markets that are being created. And so they began to see this beautiful partnership between governments and the entrepreneurs. And so the question about is it their jobs, is it their role, um, it's an interesting one. In many prosperous countries, the governments typically take care of, of, of all those things. And so the idea then becomes, poor country, you need to spend more of your GDP on or your gross domestic product on education. You need to spend this percentage on health care. And we measure all those things. It's, it's a process, and it's increased over time, but it was triggered by entrepreneurs who created new markets. Hmm. So would you say that humanitarian work is best led by entrepreneurs, innovators, business executives? I want to I take exception to 
the way you're talking about that because humanitarian work, if, if what you mean by that, which is what we we often mean when we talk about humanitarian work, which is you know drought relief and starving people and giving um, shots to people, uh, you know things that are humanitarian crises. That those are are necessary things to be dealt with. We need government, NGO, whoever. You know we need help to get those things done with. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about activities that develop an economy in the long term. So it's not a choice between humanitarian efforts to save lives, you know, from from you know, literally dying, mm-hmm. um, and development efforts. We're talking about development efforts as its own thing, which is often wrapped up in the same thinking as humanitarian efforts, but, but we mean them as two separate things. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. So then would you say that those efforts will be better left to innovators? Well, I know, I know what I would say is I think we'd say not better left to, but understand how important innovators are um, in the process. So, you know, mm-hmm. so, so often it's not, it's development is thought of as the province of governments and NGOs and, and people who are, are trying to make things better and to grow the economy. There's no question about it. But our book really emphasizes that uh, histor- history tells us time and time again, real development, real economic growth been lit on fire by innovation. Innovation is the, is the beginning of a catalytic change. So understanding how important that is in the entire equation is what we're hoping people people get. It's not that they that, that those things aren't helpful and necessary, but the seed is, is the innovation, and then the water and fertilizer and all those things are from government and NGOs and other efforts. But but the innovation is the beginning of creating something really catalytic. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a market creating innovation that comes into a country, builds up all of this infrastructure, different things like that. Um, is there a risk that the country would become dependent on? the existence of this corporation, and if the corporation were to fall under, pull out, et cetera, et cetera, then the country would suffer as a result? When you create a new market, when the distinctions between creating a new market in a country of the types of innovations um, is that market-creating innovations uh, create lo- what we call local jobs. So let, let, let me just go ahead and explain the three types of innovation, mm-hmm. and then we'll see how they, they differ amongst uh, 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 one another. Market-creating innovations transform complicated products into simple and affordable products. Um, and these make these products accessible to many more people in society. So an example of this would be, uh, think about the proliferation of mobile phones in many countries in Africa. 20 years ago, when Mo Ibrahim decided he wanted to sell mobile phones to people in um, Africa, many of his colleagues at the time said, it was crazy, it would never work. They're poor, there's AIDS, there's corruption, bad governance, and so on. You name it, they, they, they mentioned it, uh, that the continent was, was, uh, was a problem. But fast forward to today, um, Africa now has close to 1 billion uh, mobile phone subscriptions. Now, what Moe Ibrahim did is exactly what Karen talked about. He went in, he saw this vast non-consumption of something that would benefit people's lives. I mean, if I wanted to communicate with my family and they lived in the village, I would have to walk uh, miles, many miles. Sometimes it would take days just to get there. Um, but he saw that and he capitalized on it and he created a product or a service that made it more uh, available. Now, in doing that, Mo Ibrahim was able to pull in many things into the economy, including thousands of jobs, tax revenues, infrastructures, um, education, healthcare, and th- things of the sort. 
Um, we, we call many of those things local jobs. Um, and so those jobs are less likely to leave even if the, uh, even if the company leaves. Uh, because what Mo Ibrahim created, um, triggered investments into this uh, mobile telephony industry in Africa. And today there, in fact, uh, an uncomfortable amount of, uh, uh, of, of mobile phone companies, um, that support about four million jobs uh, that that have about two hundred or so billion dollars of economic value to the continent, upwards of twenty billion dollars in tax revenue. So that's the impact of a market creating innovation. Sustaining innovations are innovations that make good products better. And so this is sort of, you know, I've got a an iPhone six and I've moved to an iPhone seven. Um, it, it's got more features. But it doesn't really have uh, the same impact on the economy as a market-creating innovation. But they're very important to keep um, companies and economies vibrant. And then the last type are efficiency innovations. Efficiency innovations are innovations that allow companies to do more with less. And so a a good example of this would be um, a company outsource certain operations to an area where uh, perhaps they could could, they could do the operations for, uh, at a lower cost. And so for the company's bottom line, it, it costs them less when they outsource the operation. And uh, those have a very different impact on the company and, and on the economy. They release cash flows, they free up cash flows for the company. A lot of times those have a negative impact on the economy. It is negative. And so to your question about um, an economy depending on these corporations, if these corporations are investing a lot in efficiency innovation, they create what we call global jobs. And those jobs are more easily moved around the world. And so um, economies that depend on efficiency innovation, um, such as you know, if you think about Mexico, especially after signing NAFTA, um, or companies in, in South Asia uh, that do a lot of low-cost uh, manufacturing, those jobs are more easily moved around the world. They, those economies are very aware of the risk of um, those jobs leaving. But market-creating innovations have a very different impact on the economy. That's great. Um, so in terms of a solution to this, because um, obviously money is a huge thing that's needed to get these market-creating innovations going, do either of you think that perhaps the way to solve this is trying to redirect funds from these push strategies into market creating innovations? Yes, um, that, that I mean it, it sounds like a simple fix, but that would do um, a world of good. Um, statistics we cite in our book in the first chapter is really how much money, uh, the uh, uh, how much of official development assistance goes towards. What we categorize as push strategies versus versus pull, and when you look at it, um, you, you know we're talking about I think it's roughly twenty or so percent goes to pull strategies, and the remainder really goes to push strategies. Again, very well intentioned, and these are things that many of these societies need. Um, however, the way in which they are introduced into these economies is not providing this long-term impact. If those percentages are switched. Um, I think we're going to see a a, a world of good uh, happen in the development industry, and you'll see poverty eradicated within the next generation. Um, We can only hope. 
Um, so I have one more question, and um, it's for the both of you. Since our primary audience here are teachers and their students, who were each of your favorite teachers? <laughs> well, I have, I have two answers. Um, the, the young child answer was I had a social studies teacher called Mr. McHugh in junior high school who was just the most magnificent former Marine and made every single kid in his class feel like we were special and we were smart and we were curious. Our discussions never stayed on track, but it was because we had so many questions. It was just absolutely fabulous. And, and to this day, I think so fondly of him. And the second one is I had a, a writing, a, a creative writing professor at Cornell in college called Allison Lurie, who actually won the Pulitzer the semester that, that I had her. And she also, she took all of our pictures at the beginning of class on Polaroids and saved them, put them up on the wall and said, I want your pictures for when, when you are all our famous writers. And she was just the most wonderful <laughs> teacher. And I wrote to her when I had my first book published and she looked it up and congratulated me. And it was just so nice to uh, have, in both cases, those are both teachers who believed in me and who uh, just made me feel like anything was possible. And, and it was fantastic being in their classes. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Nafosa, who was yours? That's an easy one. And, uh, Clay Christensen. Professor Christensen is uh, one of the most brilliant professors I have ever met, brilliant human being. But that's not even his most unique quality. Um, it is his kindness. I mean, the way he approaches each person who walks up to him, each student he teaches, um, is similar to what, what, what Karen just mentioned about her favorite teacher. He sees you as a full human being, and he has designed his life around helping other people. Have a teacher like that, um, it really makes you believe you can do and accomplish anything. And so for me, it's Professor Clay Christensen. <laughs> I just want to second on Clay. He was never my professor, but one of the things that made him so brilliant to work with as a writer, a co-partner, a co-writer and a partner in his books is that the teacher in him is so good at explaining things, as, as, as helping you understand how A connects to B to C and D. It's, it's a unique quality because so often really brilliant people like Clay are up in their own stratosphere and they can't articulate the thought process. Clay can do that and he finds different ways to do it until you understand it and it's amazingly effective and I think that's a real gift that he has and, and I hope the books we've written with him uh, have reflected that as well. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your answers and for having a delightful conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.